It's Thursday, August 14th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. So I'm on the website of the Consumer Product Safety Commission. You know, you log on to the computer, you either go to Slate or Deadspin or Gawker or Twitter or the Consumer Product Safety Commission. By the way, the Consumer Product Safety Commission only has 385 followers on Twitter. Dust Might Magic has 1,731. The Consumer Product Safety Commission tells you about the things in your home, living in your home, that can kill you. Only 385 people want to know about it on Twitter. 386 now. Yeah, two fingers at this guy. So I was going through all their recalls, and I gotta say, they really seem warranted. Like, I was scanning them, and I think maybe in the back of my head, I was like, all right, let's see how nanny state we've become, or come on, everyone knows not to put the exploding sword in the ground. And by the way, they literally did recall an exploding firework sword, but it exploded not when it was supposed to explode. It exploded at inopportune times. Good recall, Consumer Product Safety Commission. In fact, their site is filled with great recalls, like the Harris Product Group Welding Torch. It was recalled because it could leave oxygen and fuel and cause a fire. Good recall. And Mayborn USA recalled its baby monitors because the cord can be pulled into the crib and wrap around the baby's neck. Good recall. And then there was the recall of stirrup leathers, which can, quote, crack and break, posing a fall hazard to the rider. Good recalls. All of these are good recalls. I was even kind of getting snarky. I'm like, come on, there's going to be one. Like, okay, a bicycle was recalled due to falling hazard. And I was expecting, come on, kids fall off their bike all the time. But this one was the front wheel of the 20-inch Avigo Youth Bicycle can detach, posing a fall hazard. Yeah, I'd say. And then I finally got, all right, here's one that's going to be ridiculous. Master Cutlery recalls neck knives due to laceration hazard. All right. If you don't know, knives can cut you. But if you read what the recall's about, the sheath does not hold the knife securely, so the knife will fall out of the sheath and pose a risk of laceration to the consumer. I want to applaud the Consumer Product Safety Commission. You know, I think the libertarians are going to tell us we don't need it. I think that whenever there's a story about government being stupid and getting it wrong, what are you going to do, a story on a time government gets it right? Just one of the everyday times government gets it right? That's what I'm doing now. All of these recalls are totally warranted, and I hope more than 385 people check out Twitter to actually follow these people, especially if you have a knife with a leaky sheath. Today on the show, the debut, the honest-to-goodness bonafide debut of Vexillology Corner in the spiel, towns with tanks. But first, we used to call it Burma, then they called it Myanmar. I still call it Burma, but you could no longer call it the great Obama administration success story. With so many hotspots in the world bedeviling the administration, there is one country that they point to as a place where progress is being made. The country of Burma, also known as Myanmar. Here's President Obama at West Point. Look at a country like Burma, which only a few years ago was an intractable dictatorship and hostile to the United States. 40 million people. Thanks to the enormous courage of the people in that country. And because we took the diplomatic initiative, American leadership, we have seen political reforms opening a once closed society. 
And it's not just the president. It's Hillary Rodham Clinton who wrote in her memoir, Hard Choices of Burma, that the prospects for progress were better than at any time in a generation. Those early days of flickering progress and uncertain hope remain a high point of my time as secretary. Bad news, Burma is not doing so well. Sectarian violence is on the rise and government reforms are waning. Well, joining us now is Jonah Blank, senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He is an expert in Asian policy. He served as policy director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee focusing on South and Southeast Asia. Hello, Jonah. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. So Burma has gone from military junta to civilian regime. That has happened. That is legitimate. But it doesn't mean that Burma is not repressive. What is the landscape like there? Burma is now theoretically under civilian rule, but under the civilian rule of its former military dictator. Now, that might sound like we're talking about Egypt and a transition like that of Field Marshal al-Sisi, who got elected as a civilian president. But Burma is very different. It hasn't gone far enough yet, but it is a real legitimate change. So the Rohingya people have been subject, human rights calls it, ethnic cleansing. This is a part of uh, Muslim and Hindu violence. So whatever progress the administration can cite, what's happened in 2014 with reports of villages being sacked and up to 49 Rohingyas being massacred certainly makes that progress seem questionable. That is true. This is right now probably the biggest mark against the Burmese government And not just the government, but the democratic opposition, too, because nobody in Burma has been particularly brave about standing up for the rights of Burmese citizens who are Muslim by religion and of a different ethnicity by background. Most of the victims have been Rohingyas, but not all of them. How was and was it the United States, but how was the ruling military junta if not bought off, at least eased away from its status as ruling military junta? Well, they haven't really been eased off. They still call all the shots. And one of the other disappointments about Burma right now is that the military is still in charge. Under the current constitution, Aung San Suu Kyi, Nobel Prize winner, the champion of democracy, the leader of the most credible political party in Myanmar, the woman who won election back in 1988 and was robbed of it by the military junta, she is barred by constitution from running for uh, president in next year's election. So the military is still very much in charge there. The question then is, why have they agreed to any reforms at all? Mm -hmm. They saw the way that other dictatorships around the world were going, and they perhaps made the decision, let's get out ahead of this curve rather than get behind it. It doesn't surprise me that even repressive dictators would change tactics, rationally realign themselves. Seems to be that you're describing a tweak more than a sea change. Almost like we work with, say, Thailand's military or a true ally to train them, even though they, uh, you know, have all these elements of repression. And, and to do that, to change not so much, you get called by President Obama and you get called by Hillary Clinton, this great success story. So what's the lesson? And what's mm. the lesson to other dictators? 
I would say that that's going too far. I think this is much more than a tweet. I do see it as self-interested. Every regime acts in its own self-interest. But it does appear to be in the interests of the Burmese people and of the democratic opposition as well. For me, the the real change that happened was the attitude of Aung San Suu Kyi and of her party. Up until now, they have dismissed all of the outreach as just empty blather. This time, they are fully on board with this. So for me, that was important enough to give it a second look. And after I gave it a second look, I, like a lot of observers, found a lot more substance there than uh, I'd originally thought. All right. So I want to ask you one more question. It's based Mm -hmm. on a quote, a quote by Tommy Vitor, who is a Mm -hmm. former spokesman for the National Security Council. And he's talking about will Burma slipping hurt Hillary Rodham Clinton's chances because she, as we documented, is championing Burma as a big success. And Tommy Vitor said, I don't know the long term odds of whether this effort will be successful. I do believe with 100 percent certainty that not a single voter will make their decision based on her policy toward Burma. You'll be lucky if they know where the fuck it is. So said Tommy Vitor. So my question is, as someone who worked in government, Mm -hmm. given that this is true, that people don't vote on Burma, do you do it? just because, you know, you believe in it or there are other policy ramifications for getting Burma right and making that a freer society? Well, there are real policy ramifications because Burma was and still is one of the few prizes up for grabs in geopolitical terms. You're talking about uh, a country of at least 40 million people that may well be shifting from a client of China and essentially a country that does not want to have anything to do with the outside world to a country that could be looking a lot like Vietnam in a few years' time. And the U.S. was way out in front of it. There are also a few things that I can't get into now because they're still classified, but just rest assured that a lot of the decision-making about this was based on something more than just feel-good. It was based on some, some real important hard policy as well as soft policy. But I'd like to just you know put in one comment just from personal experience mm-hmm. of first time I went to Burma and when I was back there last year first time I was in Burma was 1987, and you could barely see a car. You very often uh, be in parts of the country, and you'd have no idea you're in the 20th century. When I was back last year in Yangon, I spent probably of a week I was there, I must have spent several solid days just in traffic jams. Is this progress? Well, (laughs) um, who can say? But Burma today is a very, very different place than it was even just two years ago. It has genuinely opened up to the outside world in a way that would have been amazing a few years ago. And it's very much in the U.S. national interest to encourage it to move all the way to a good course. Well, let's hope one day it makes true progress, meaning smog, texting while (laughs) crossing the street, and not being able to get a good seat in a restaurant. (laughs) Jonah Blank is senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. For over a decade, he was an expert in Asian affairs on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you so much, Jonah. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure.
So if you know anything about me, I love flags. I'm obsessed with vexillology. In fact, there are those who allege that I founded the gist just as a Trojan horse for getting into the issue of vexillology. Wouldn't that be weird? You know, the old complaint about writing about rock music is like dancing about architecture. It's sort of similar to talking about flags. And we do want to invite the listeners, all the gistionados, all the vexillala lovers, to best follow the conversation we're about to have. Go to facebook.com slash slate and we posted all the flags we're talking about. If you're not a Facebook user, we're at slate.com slash the gist, and you could follow along with the flags. We've had many vexillology corners, but we've really needed the right guest. We've needed Ted Kay, who's a former editor of The Raven, a former treasurer of NAVA, the North American Vexillological Association, and Ted Kay is with me. Hello, Ted. Howdy. Thanks for being here. And to inaugurate this the true official Vexillology Corner debut, Andrea with the jingle. It's time for some Vexillicious-ness. Vexillicious-ness. With Mike and Ted. Here's Ted. All right, Ted, thanks for joining me. That was great. Yeah, right, we try. Let's go to a interesting corner of the world, Ukraine, where there are separatists in the eastern part of the country who want to uh, align themselves with Russia, and they want to do so, as separatists everywhere want to do, by expressing themselves through flags. Let's talk about some of the flags of the Ukraine. Ted, where would you like to take it? Oh, let's talk about Donetsk. It's in the eastern part of Ukraine. There is uh, still some fighting going on around there, and it's very much up in the air. What has their flag been like, and uh, is there a new flag they want to adopt? Well, there's a flag of the province of Donetsk within Ukraine. Ukraine has 24 provinces called oblasts, and Donetsk regularly has a flag that's a very striking flag. It's a horizontal bybar of black below and uh, yellow and blue above. The yellow and blue is a rising sun, and in the black is a reflection of that sun. Very striking flag. That's the flag of Donetsk within Ukraine. Then the separatists who are uh, supported by Russia are have created a flag that's different from that, that reflects the Russian flag, and it's a horizontal tri-bar of black over blue over red with the Russian imperial double-headed eagle in the middle. And then just in case you didn't know, (laughs) the words Donetsk Republic down below. Right. The just-in-case part is, I think, is anathema to proper flag practices. You know, the idea that we can't let anyone possibly misinterpret that. If you're having that thought, maybe you're not engaged in best practices of flag design. Indeed. Let me say something about that. You've, you've echoed a key principle of flag design, which is flags should not have writing on them. Mm-hmm. Flags are, by their nature, a graphic symbol, not a verbal symbol. And if you have to put words on your flag to explain what your flag represents, your symbolism has failed. Remind us of what are the five great principles for a great flag. Sure. The principles of flag design are keep it simple. A child should be able to draw it from memory. Use meaningful symbolism. The flag's images, colors, and patterns should relate to what it symbolizes. Use two to three basic colors. Should limit the colors to the basic flag colors and limit them to three and have them contrast well. The fourth is no lettering or seals. Don't use writing of any kind or an organization's seal. And be distinctive. 
Don't make your flag exactly like another flag. But if you want to echo a connection, you can make your flag similar to another flag. Right. So I would say that the the donuts the Donetsk flag, not the one that's been created anew, but the one that is longstanding for that province, more or less works. Yes. Yes. I would give it a, a somewhere between an eight and a nine on on the scale. It's a little bit complicated to draw those ovals that represent the reflection of the sun in the in the black bar mm-hmm. and getting the the rays correct would be a, a challenge but anybody could sketch that flag and you'd know what it is so i'd give it a nine and what do we think of the new flag the flag that the rebels have adopted which very much looks like a russian flag uh two-thirds of the colors of the russian flag the russian double-headed eagle and also the hey let's write a little bit in case you forgot who we are flag as far as flag design goes, it's not a very good flag because of the detail of the um, charge. The double-headed eagle is very difficult for anyone to draw, and you'd have to print it. It'd be very hard to sew. And writing the name on the flag is, of course, uh, a failure of symbolism. However, I don't think the point of the flag is to mark territory or represent the the breakaway republic in any way except in the news. This is a message. This is a messaging flag similar to what we've discussed with the Gadsden flag. This is saying, look, we're here, we're different, and of course you don't know what our flag looks like because we've just made it up. So we're going to write the words on it so that you see it in every news photo. And this gets to a point. The, the purpose of a flag can change over time as uh, to rally troops as a republic ages to heal divisions, right? Of course. The first flags were to mark the positions of troops on a battlefield and then later to identify whose country a ship belonged to, and then eventually marking positions or ownership or anything like that. There are a tremendous number of uses for flags, and of course that affects their designs as well. Ted Kay, former editor of The Raven, and my boon companion on Vexillology Corner. Thank you, Ted. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Ever since the Saturday killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, the nation has been learning details of this town in the St. Louis suburbs. There doesn't seem to be that much that's going right. The town is two-thirds African-American. The police force is 94% white. The town council is five-sixths white. The mayor is white. And the standoff between police and protesters is characterized by other terrible contrasts. Not racial, but military and civilian. The St. Louis County Police, who the governor of Missouri today announced will be pulled out, want to advance or have wanted to advance the notion that they're protecting the town. But look at the people. The people are wearing T-shirts and jeans and the police are dressed well. Let me quote business insider's Paul Zoldra, quote, their uniform would be mistaken for a soldier's if it weren't for their police patches. They wear green tops and pants fashioned after the U.S. Marine Corps camouflage pattern. And they stand in front of massive 
up-armored trucks called a Bearcat, similar in look to a mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle, or as the troops who rode in them call it, the MRAP. Zoldro, who was a Marine, went on to say, why do these cops need MARPAT, which is Marine Pattern Camo Pants again? I asked on Twitter this morning. A response came from someone who served in the Army's 82nd Airborne Division, quote, we rolled lighter than that in an actual war zone. Now let's pause for a second to consider the vehicles. Yesterday, MSNBC's Alex Witt asked the mayor of Ferguson, James Knowles, about the heavily armored military vehicles rolling through town. Well, but what you what your cameras aren't showing is that gunfire is erupting all around this at this time. So, well, maybe there were shots in the air around police officers. The evidence of that would be that they reported hearing shots. And I have to tell you, in situations like this, reports of shots are rampant. Documents of there actually being shots, much less so. I remember covering the aftermath of Katrina. Helicopters were being shot at. Only it doesn't seem that helicopters actually were being shot at. That was never independently verified. So you have to ask yourself: Do the anti-mine vehicles in Ferguson make things safer? Do layers of armor help quell the tension? This is part of a trend I call towns with tanks. The Pentagon has been like Oprah on uppers. You get a tank, you get a tank, you get a tank. According to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. military defense department says there's been vigorous interest from local police in 11,000 mine-resistant, ambush-protected MRAP tanks that the Pentagon is giving away in the U.S. This was an article from 2013, and it was about what was going on in 2010 and years later. These trucks cost 400000 to 700000 new. They're free to communities, though police have to pay to transport the vehicles. So small towns, medium-sized towns, fill out a form. It's actually a one-page form to request a tank or an MRAP. The Department of Homeland Security has set aside $6 million to help towns get these MRAPs. And Ferguson, towns like Ferguson or the St. Louis County, thinks they need a tank. So the police chief in Ferguson, Thomas Jackson, was asked why his town needed such a vehicle. People are using bombs now. There were reports of a Molotov cocktail. That's true. That's the bomb you need a half-million-dollar armored vehicle to protect yourself from. You know, another perhaps more believable explanation comes from a quote in Mother Jones, a town councilman from Keene, New Hampshire, small town, 23,000, low crime rate, applied for one of these MRAP vehicles. He said, our application talked about the danger of domestic terrorism, but that's just something you put in the grant application to get the money. He went on to say, what red-blooded American cop isn't going to be excited about getting a toy like this? That's what it comes down to. There are reasons to have an armored vehicle at your disposal. Norman Stamper was chief of police in Seattle. He oversaw pretty much a disastrous policing effort with the World Trade Organization protests there. But now he's a reformer. But even he acknowledges that when he was working in San Diego in 1984, when a gunman took over a McDonald's, it would have been helpful to have a armored vehicle. It might have uh, helped save some of the 21 people who were killed. But now he advises that police take it easy, that they listen, and he's been very critical of how the police in Ferguson have been dealing with things. Missouri Governor Jay Nixon said on Thursday, quote, you will all see a different tone in law enforcement's response in Ferguson. Well, to change the tone, first, you might want to step out from behind your reinforced steel and actually listen.
And that's it for today's show. The stand assembly on Andrea Salenzi can fail and cause the producer of Slate Podcasts to tip over unexpectedly. The footrest on Andy Bowers can crack, compromising the executive producer of Slate Podcasts' strength and stability, thus posing a falling hazard. You could listen in SoundCloud. You could listen in iTunes. You could review us. We will take your review. You can ask for a recall of the gist. We will investigate that. Also, we are on Yo. We will Yo you the minute the podcast is up. Just Yo us first at podcast. That's our Yo name, podcast, Yo. And for a similar experience, sign up for the daily email that hits your inbox the moment the show is live. Go to slate.com slash gist email. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. The gist is a podcast and also an exercise band. However, the black plastic ball attached to the band's door anchor can unexpectedly release and strike the user, which is a fine way of saying thanks for listening.